Returning for its third year, a Deseret Book Christmas is back and bigger than ever with names you know and love. The Bonner family, Nathan Pacheco, the Nashville Tribute Band, Callie Reed, the Truman Brothers, Lexi Walker, Jenny Oaks Baker, Jared Pierce, and Casey Elliott from Gentry. All together for the first time ever, and you can stream in the comfort of your own home for just $15 per household, anytime between December 10th and December 16th. So get a ticket, snuggle up with the ones you love, and enjoy an evening full of music, storytelling, and Christmas cheer that is sure to bring the Christmas spirit into your living room and leave a gentle reminder that Christ and His mission can unite us all. Visit Deseret Book Presents for more information. On the interview you're about to hear, I had an interesting thing happen. I usually try to do a lot of research before interviews so that nothing comes as a surprise. But three-fourths of the way through this interview, I learned that Kate McKay joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when she was 18 years old. Had I known this beforehand, I probably would have dug into that experience a little deeper early on. I considered asking Katie and Brett to re-record this interview because I found her experience to be so fascinating, but ultimately I decided to leave it as is. I hope you enjoy learning from these new friends as much as I did. Carl Jung first spoke of the two halves of life, something that has been widely discussed since. He wrote, One cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning, for what was great in the morning will be of little importance in the evening, and what in the morning was true will at evening become a lie. Does this mean that if, as a little kid, you knew the church was true, it can't be true in the second half of your life? How can we transition to the second half of our lives with our faith intact and thriving? And could that faith possibly be even more beautiful in the second half than it was in the first? On today's episode, we talk with two people who have devoted more than 10 years to running a website and a podcast called The Art of manliness, which they hope will aid men in their efforts to transition from the first half of life to the second. Brett and Kate McKay are both from Oklahoma. Kate earned her master's in religion from Oklahoma City University, while Brett graduated from University of Tulsa College of Law. They founded The Art of Manliness in 2008, and it has grown into the largest independent men's interest magazine on the web. They are the parents of two children. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so happy to have Katie and Brett McKay on the line with me today. Brett and Katie, welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Well, I have been so looking forward to this, and I have to tell you that I did kind of a deep dive into what you all have worked on for the past. How many years have you all been doing Art of Manliness? Since 2008. So we're coming up on what, 13 years? Amazing. That's a long time. So I want, I want, wondered if we could kind of go back to that time to 2008 and when you, Brett, originally had the idea for Art of Manliness, you two were already married at that time, right? So yeah, I was... 
we were already married. Uh, I was attending the University of Tulsa College of Law. My plans were to become an attorney. But at the time, I had been blogging like everyone and their mom were doing back in the early <laughs> 2000s. And I had this personal finance blog called The Frugal Law Student. That was something I just did for fun when I wasn't studying for torts or contracts. But then like 2000, like winter 2007, I was at a Borders bookstore taking a break from studying. And I was doing what I usually do when I go to a Borders, which was I'm going to go to the magazine section and browse magazines. And I was in the men's section. And I was just looking at it. And I just realized, you know what? Every single month, it's the same thing with these men's magazines. You're going to see articles on how to get six-pack abs, lifestyles that you know, no average guy could afford, let alone a broke, newly married law student. Lots of stuff about sex and things like that. And I just realized, you know what? This doesn't, this doesn't appeal to me. This doesn't resonate with me. And right then and there, I was like, you know what? I blog. Like I could create the men's magazine that I'd want to read. And so right then and there, I had the idea as like, okay, what kind of stuff would I write about it if I had my own men's magazine? I started coming up with content ideas and I was like, well, what am I going to call this thing? And the idea... So I read this book when I was in college called The Manly Arts. And it was about bare knuckle boxing in the 19th century. Okay. I was like, the manly arts. Like, that doesn't sound good. Nah, the art of manliness. And and I also like, well, you know, I like I like that sort of vintage thing. It's pretty cool. So I decided to make a bare knuckle boxer sort of my my icon. And so that's what it was. I started it January 2008 is when I published the first article, which was how to shave with a safety razor, and been doing it since then. So, Katie, what was your reaction when Brett had this idea? And did you have any idea at the time that this would become such a significant part of your lives together? I did not really understand it at the time. I'm pretty slow on the technological pickup in general. Uh, And, you know, he was like, it's just for fun. And, but then he was like, you know, maybe it could be something bigger. And I was like, Brett, you know, you should really concentrate on your law studies. And, you know, it's a blog. I don't really know what a blog is exactly, but I think law school should be your priority. And I'm really happy to have been entirely wrong. One idea that you've talked about, Brett, with multiple people on your podcast is the idea of there being two halves of life. And I think that this concept is so fascinating. David Brooks calls it the second mountain where the purpose of life kind of shifts from a life of self-centeredness or to other-centered, a life of interdependence rather than independence. And then Carl Jung called it the first and second halves of life. As we emailed in preparation for this interview, Brett, you mentioned that you think this applies to faith and is something that Latter-day Saints struggle with moving from that first half of life to the second with our faith still intact. Why do you think that is? So yeah, this is an idea also talked about by a uh, Franciscan monk. Richard, uh, Richard Rohr, Rohr, right? Father Richard Rohr. Yeah. And he talks about the first half of life is all about building structure in your life. It's about building a container. Uh, for your life. And this is good. Like you, you need that structure, you need that container. It's all about establishing yourself as a you're establishing your career, establishing a family, getting a house, getting prestige. It's all about checking boxes that you, you hear you do these things. And we need that in life. The second half of life is all about what am I going to put in the container? 
that I've built for myself. It's about what what does my life mean now? Uh, so first half is about building the life. Second half half of the life is answering the question: Who am I? What do I? What does this all mean? So applying it to faith, I think you know, as Latter Day Saints, growing up, we're really good at this first half of life stuff. Um, we have these. These, these checklists for people. We have this structure for individuals, for kids. You know, we, we, you go, you get baptized. And then if you're a, a boy, you have to go through the priesthood. You advance through these things. Then you go on a mission and then you go to the temple and then you get married. And we do a really good job of setting people, getting people ready. But then afterwards, there's not a lot of instruction on, well, what now? Like I got, I got married in the temple. What do I do now? And it's something I think you have to, I've noticed I've had to kind of figure out on my own. What would you say, Katie? Yeah. Uh, something that I like that Richard Rohr says is that the second half of life is about finding the task within the task. And he says, what we are really doing when we are doing what we are doing, which sounds a little, sounds a little <laughs> deep, but I think the idea is that you are going deeper into your faith, not just, yeah, checking the boxes off. And I think that, I think that a lot of like faith crises, is that how you say the plural crisis, <laughs> um, happen because you, you do grow up uh, with more of a, like a simple black and white, no flaws kind of story about faith. And I think that is a good thing that is like helpful in establishing the structure of your faith. But I think a lot of young adults reach a point where they realize the story of faith and of church history is it's a lot more complex than they realized when they were growing up. And they feel like they want a different kind of faith journey, a different change in their perspective, but they're not exactly sure what that should look like. And so I think that one option is to go into this second half of life faith mode where you're looking for deeper meaning and you're coming at things from a new angle and a fresh angle, but that can be pretty hard. And so I think that people often choose a second option, which is they just take the narrative that they grew up with that it's like, you know, this is all perfect and true. And then they just flip it upside down. So it's all true. And then they go to, it's none of it is true. It was all a lie. And that is like definitely a change in your thinking. And that will definitely send you on a different kind of faith journey. But really, it's just another first half of life kind of narrative. You know, it's still one dimensional, it's still childlike, it's still, um, you know, what Richard Rohr calls dualistic thinking, sort of black and white thinking. So I don't think that it it won't ultimately be like satisfying to your soul. Uh so you know I, I think that is it's difficult to make that transition. And I do think people end up kind of wanting to flip things upside down. And I think that you have to go with that 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 first option of looking at things from a deeper perspective instead. Yeah. Which I think you know I ha- that has a lot to do with I think embracing the idea of paradox, which we could talk about more too. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that because I think I think there are a lot of people that would like to go with that first option where it's like, yeah, I would like to dig more into my faith, but it's almost like 
we don't even know where to start with that. Mm. What does that look like in practice? So you mentioned Richard Rohr talks about this idea of moving beyond dualistic thinking, meaning like black and white to embrace paradox, meaning like it's okay to ask questions and you can still be totally all in the gospel while exploring those questions. So can you talk to me a little bit about why you think that that is possible and like what that would look like in practice, that digging into your faith a little bit deeper? Yeah, definitely. I think that I think lots of times in the church, we think that we need to resolve our doubt and that doubt and belief are antithetical. But I do think that is more like a a first life, first half of life kind of narrative. And I think that you can have faith and doubt at the same time. And what I, I don't mean by that, that you have a doubt and you put it on the shelf and you don't think about it ever again. And I also don't mean that you take your doubt and your belief and you kind of like smush them together so that you have a sort of compromise position. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, I don't really know that the Book of Mormon events really happened, but I think that maybe it's an inspired piece of literature. Or I don't know that Jesus Christ was the savior of the world, but he was a really wise teacher. You're kind of smushing the doubt and belief uh, together. And I think that if that can help you like stay in the faith longer, then that's okay. But I have found that that sort of limbo position doesn't end up being sustainable in the long run. Uh, so I am talking about holding a belief as a belief and a doubt as a doubt and being totally okay with having both of those things in your life. So for example, um, I don't have a testimony that polygamy was divinely inspired. Like maybe it was and maybe it wasn't, but I don't have a testimony of that. And when I think about it, I feel kind of disturbed and it's a hard thing, I think for me and I think it for other people too. But I do like 100% think that Joseph Smith found golden plates in the ground and Christ visited the Americas. And I do 100% think that Jesus Christ was the savior of the world. So I might have a doubt about polygamy, but then I also know that these things are completely true. And so I can hold both of those things at the same time. So I think that you know, kind of growing up and maturing in your faith is being able to see that truth is has a lot to do with paradox. It can seem like those are two contradictions, doubt and belief, but you can have both of those in your life without freaking out about it. Right. And I think it's so interesting that you just use those words without freaking out about it. Because <laughs> one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how I think Satan uses the feeling of panic to get people to walk away from the things that they do know, because it Definitely. seems like for people that I know that have left the church, it seems like they get in this state of like, I have to figure this out right now. Right. And if I don't figure this out right now, I have to like walk away. And so it's almost this feeling of urgency mm-hmm. where I don't think faith can be urgent. Like I think faith is a process that's built over time. I think that when you have the doubt and belief, you feel an inherent tension. And I think that tension, we're like uncomfortable with it. And so we want it to go away and maybe we panic about it. And the way that I've come to think about it is that 
instead of like panicking, you should sort of frame it in. I, I think about it as it's like the particles in a super collider, you know, they're colliding with each other. And so there's a lot of tension, but it also creates this great animating energy that can actually be this great energy of your faith. It can actually make your faith strong and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Joseph Smith, didn't he have a quote, something about paradox, like truth is found between paradox or something like that? I believe so. I don't know the exact one. Maybe you can... Well, yeah, I can try to dig it up. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I think something too, you have to... This this tension, you have to learn to be okay with it. Um, And okay with both the... I mean, this isn't, this doesn't just apply to church. It just applies to life in general. Life is both tragic and joyous at the same time. Mm-hmm. And look at the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve. It was tragic, kicked out from the presence of God, mortality, death comes here. But it's also, we call it an upward fall. It's a, a happy fall. We Because of that, uh, we get to experience mortality and we get to experience a savior. We get to have a savior because of that. Um, that we had the plan of salvation. So the the trick, I think, not only with the gospel, but just in life in general, is being okay with things being both good and bad at the same time. Yeah. Uh, was that quote that you were talking about, Brett, the one where Joseph says, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest? Yes. There you go. So yeah. good. Yeah. Okay. So I love this idea and I want to dig into it a little bit more. One thing that you've talked about in terms of this first half of life, which I think it's so cool that Brett, you kind of took this transitional time for yourself. You were like in that transitioning from first half of life to second half of life by definition, when you kind of started this website. And so in that first half of life, we talk a lot about the influence of family and peers and culture. And I think one thing that can be tough with faith is because we've relied on the examples of others and we've tried, you know, in the church, we're encouraged, choose good friends, like be around people that have the same standards that you have. And one thing I've noticed with people that I've recently watched in my own life is that when someone they love leaves the church, it rocks the boat for them personally. Would you say that is part of the transition from first half of life to the second, being able to like independently sustain our faith and recognizing that others may choose a different path, but being confident in the path that we're on? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I think it's, look, it's, it, you should be upset and bummed out and sad when someone decides to to leave because you know, for us, in our church, salvation is very communal. Like when, when you become baptized, you know, the covenants are a lot of it's just bearing one another's burdens. You, you right. join a community. And then when you make further covenants in the temple, it's all, it's very communal. It's about, I'm going to build up the church. Um, and so when someone leaves, it's like, like a, a part of the fabric is being ripped out. Um, and we should be bummed about that. But as you said, I think it's important to, be okay with that. Uh, don't let it be bummed about it. Be mourn it, right? Uh, but also, you know, continue to be that person's friend and and be able to hold those two things in your ideas. Like, ah, yes, I still believe in this. This person that I love and respect and admire might not. I can still be their friend and still have them part of my life, and I can still be a, a faithful member of the church. And I think that's part of that second half of life stuff. 
Another thing that you mentioned, Brett, in our correspondence beforehand is that one's faith should not be boring and we should stay passionate about the gospel even after leaving young adulthood. So I wondered for you both, what have you found to be effective in doing that in your own life? How do we keep it from becoming boring? So I, I think one thing is to continue asking those, those deep questions that you would ask your friends late at night about the gospel. I, I remember growing up you know, in our youth group, we have these parties every weekend at someone's house. We would go to someone's house, play games, listen to ska music and uh, drink 7-Up Punch, whatever that stuff's called. <laughs> but then we'd go out at night and I remember like looking up at the stars and we'd have these discussions about the lyrics of if you could hide a collab and what does it mean for you know things to never end and whatever. And I think as you get older, you tend to stop asking those questions because you get so caught up in the day to day. So I think uh, make make time for that. Those questions. Don't forget, like you, let your let your younger self be a mentor to you and keep asking those questions. I'd say another one for both of us is we've had you know, scripture study groups with friends of ours with Come Follow Me. And that's been really useful. Katie, would you agree? Yeah, I think that is very, very useful. Uh, I think sometimes people feel frustrated with the worship experience at church, that it's not super deep. And you know, the reality is that our Sunday services have to kind of be keyed to the lowest common denominator. And that's not a bad thing. It's part of being in a community is that we all have to be at the same level. And, but that means that sometimes like Sunday school, Sunday school can always be a lot better, I think, than it is, but it may not ever be the as deep as you want it to be. So I think that it can be really fulfilling and edifying to start your own scripture study group with your friends. And so I think in those more intimate settings, you could really ask the deeper questions and get some fresh angles on things and just kind of come to get a, a, yeah, a deeper relationship with the gospel. For sure. I think one thing that I feel like we all could do a little bit of a better job with is kind of taking responsibility for our own faith journey right. and, and recognizing that, yeah, like church is great and serves different purposes, that two hour block on Sunday. And I think certainly during COVID, we all came to appreciate that a little bit more. But I also think that there are things that we can be doing in our own personal lives to strengthen our faith and, and dig deeper Another thing in the first half of life, I think it was David Brooks talked about how we seek freedom of constraint, but that changes to freedom of capacity in the second half of life. And that one element of that is choosing to make and keep commitments. And I think this is one thing that, you know, in hosting this podcast and talking to a lot of different people. One of the biggest things that I feel like I've come to appreciate more about the gospel is covenants and the idea that the church allows us opportunities to make and keep commitments. So I wondered for you all, how would you say that you see that the church encourages us to do that and why is making those commitments so important? No. So I think this is the big message of President Nelson, and I love it, this idea of the covenant path, that we, we need to get on the covenant path and stay on the covenant path, which is all about 
making commitments. And yeah, like I said, we, we often typically think of commitments as they, they bind you and prohibit you to do things. But in the process of restraining yourself, it allows you to be more generative. It allows you to focus on what can I do? And it sort of focuses your energy and your just everything you do towards something that's bigger than yourself. I mean, the whole idea of like when we go, when we make covenants, we are endowed with power. Like we are, we are given power from, from on high to go and do amazing things and building up the kingdom of God. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the message that we're hearing a lot lately from the pulpit, from general conference is covenants are, are awesome and you should make them and then keep them. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that limits release our creativity and our potential, you know, with like art, if you're like writing haiku or you're writing a poem in iambic pentameter, you those actual limits can force you to be your most creative self. You know, like electricity needs a conduit to flow through and a river runs more rapidly through a narrow channel than like a broad stagnant pond. And I think that these limits channel who we are and our potential and actually help us to become uh, our best selves. For sure. I think that that is so good. I was actually just thinking earlier this week about the idea that I think the world would have us believe that by opening ourselves up to another person, that that is like a very dangerous position to be in. But covenants would tell us like President Nelson talked about in conference, you know, get married. And then he's like, you may ask what difference will it make in your life? It will make all the difference. And I think that there's, there's power in committing ourselves and we invite strength and and the power of the atonement into our lives. So that kind of leads me perfectly into my next question for you, which is one of these big commitments is marriage. And I loved in your interview, Brett, with David Brooks, he talked about this idea of maximum marriage, like basically you don't want to do marriage halfway. You want to like get all of the benefits out of it that it can possibly give you. What have the two of you found to be most effective in strengthening and maximizing your marriage? Well, I think the the first step is just marrying the right person. And I think I've done that. Katie's amazing. You know, we're with, we live with, I mean, we're with each other, like literally, tw- literally 24 <laughs> seven, but I never get tired of her. She's great. Uh, and I love her a lot. And Something I think I think it was David Brooks that talked about this is marriage is basically a fifty or sixty year long conversation. So you need to find somebody that you're willing to talk to for that long, and will have those conversations that will cause you to grow. So I think that's key number one is is just finding someone who has those same ideals and values as you. Katie, what would you? No, I I totally agree. Yeah. And and then beyond that, so I think you can apply this 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 first half of life, second half of life rubric to even a marriage. There's a there's sort of a first half of life component to marriage, sort of the workaday stuff, um, just managing the to dos, managing a household, uh, etc. And so something that helped Katie and I with that every week we do a weekly marriage meeting where we just check in, we show appreciation for each other, what you know what we did during the week, that we discuss 
to-dos that are going on, practices kids have to be at, stuff that needs to be fixed around the house. We plan for good times. And then we talk about big issues. And that's been, I think, a big game. We've done that for years, but it really does make a difference. And then that sort of that second half of life stuff, the, the meaningful stuff, I think it's just important to, again, have those conversations uh, about you know, what is like, for, never forget like what your marriage is about, right? It's about helping each other and your kids make covenants and return back to our, our father in heaven. So I think that's a, another component to it as well. Yeah. I think that David Brooks says that you should, you should really be able to admire your spouse. And I think continuing to be a person that is worthy of admiration is important. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So I've been waiting for this, this quote, the whole interview, my favorite quote um, from David Brooks. And I think he said this in the interview with you, Brett. He also said it in his book, The Second Mountain. He said, to me, the best definition of a commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure or behavior around it for those moments when love falters. And I think that this applies in marriage and in family. I think it also applies to our faith. So how do you think that we build a structure or a behavior around our faith for the moments when love falters? Because I feel like that's where that sense of panic kind of sets in is when people feel that love start to falter. And so it's like, what do we do in those moments or what do we do to prepare for those moments before they ever get there so that when that love does seem to falter, we don't panic. So I think I would kind of come at this from a different direction and say that I think that the church provides that that structure and those habits for us really well with the sacrament meeting and service and, and temple worship. I think that the thing that sometimes we need to work on and maybe is lacking is that we haven't fallen in love with the mm. gospel. It's, so I, I think a lot of times people have taken on the commitment without, be, without the falling in love. There's this really great quote from a professor of preaching named Fred Craddock. And he said, many who say, here we go again, have not in fact ever gone before. And I think that church and the commitment of church can feel like a grind and it can feel like a burden if you haven't had the falling in love experience. And then if you do have the falling in love experience, what feels like effort and work and even like panic can feel like a joy. I oftentimes think about when you are first dating someone and you're in the head over heels, falling in love phase. Uh, you feel like there's nothing that you wouldn't do for that person. Uh, so, you know, and to kind of like highlight the contrast, like if an acquaintance that you don't know that well called you up at midnight and said, uh, I need a ride from the airport, you would be like, oh, geez, you know, really begrudgingly, okay, fine. Um, but if your boyfriend called you up and said, I needed a ride, you'd be flying out the door and you, you can't wait to get in the car and see him. And that really is the difference in the motivation when you have the falling in love experience versus not having that. And I also think that it, it resolves the paradox that we find in the scriptures where Christ says that 
my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think lots of times we look at that and we think, how can that be true? The church and the gospel requires so much effort. But if you have fallen in love with the gospel, it it doesn't, it, I mean, it still feels like work, but it doesn't really, it feels like a, it's very natural. It's a natural thing. So I think that a lot of like our problems with feeling in conflict with the church or wanting to fall out of it is that, yeah, we've not had that kind of romance. I know that sounds weird, but I think that there should be a certain romance and enchantment that happens with the gospel. And I would, yeah. So I agree with that. And I think anyone who's been on a mission has experienced how your work, I would call it work, you know, your work in the gospel changes whenever you infuse it with love. When I first, when I, when I was on my mission, first got there, I was in like first half of life mode. It's like, I'm going to grind this out. I'm a type A. I got to do, got to obey the rules exactly. I've got to, you know, make sure I give this many dis- discussions. I was going to make sure that I was, that Brett was doing this, but it didn't go anywhere. It just, it just felt like a grind. And then halfway through my mission, I just had this epiphany really that look, this, your work isn't going to, it, yes, it's it's an important part, but like, that's not the thing that converts people. That's not the thing like Christ in his, in his atonement is what converts people. And as soon as I, I realized that it, like, like Katie said, like the yoke becomes easy. The burden becomes light. I was still doing the things I was doing before, but it didn't feel like a grind anymore. In fact, I, it just felt really good to go out and do this stuff. And so, yeah, I'm always trying to recapture that, that feeling of lightness, of grace that I experienced on my mission uh, when it comes to not only my, my own gospel living, but also just life itself, like work itself. I love these thoughts so much. And I want to ask one more question before we get to our final question. I think a mission is a great place for kind of that transition to happen, right? Where it becomes something that we love. And I think it becomes that for many people um, while serving a mission. But I wonder what you would say in terms of outside of a mission, and, and that's obviously a crazy experience, you know. Um, but outside of that, how do we fall in love with the gospel? How do we, what does that experience look like? I've thought about this a lot. I feel like I, in some ways, had it easy in that I'm a convert and I was baptized when I was 18. And I think that for me, it was kind of love at first sight. And so I, I thought about, okay, if I, if I was grown up in the church, like how how would have the falling in love process have worked or looked? And I think that maybe it's more like, um, you know, sometimes people are friends with someone for a long time and then something just happens and they end up like falling in love with each other, you know? Uh, and I think that that seems to happen when they start recognizing things in the other person. They start noticing things that are really endearing. And for me, I mean, even though I'm a convert, I I would say that I re-fall in love with the gospel all the time. And I think that that happens through that process of noticing and contemplating and letting 
I just think that the gospel is amazingly magical. Um, so as I said, I got baptized when I was 18 and then I went off to BYU. And one of the many things that shocked me about church culture, it was a little bit of an adjustment for me, was that uh, there were, I, I was kind of shocked that there were people who were complacent about the gospel, you know, like just kind of, eh, or whatever. And right. to me, when I joined the church, I thought, if you are in this gospel where you can find golden plates in the ground and Christ visited the Americas and a member of the Godhead dwells inside of you and there's a living prophet and temples on the earth again, it's like it would be impossible to look at that and then be kind of like, meh, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. And I think that if you really take the time to ponder it, it will fill your soul with enchantment. Like even when I, when I first held the book of Mormon, even without opening it, I could just feel the power of it simply sitting in my hand. And even today, sometimes I'll hold the book of Mormon and I can still feel that because when you, when you really like take a step back and think about the context and think about what you're holding, this second Testament of Jesus Christ that we get to have in our life it's amazing. It's like totally amazing. And I think that we, I think that falling in love happens when we take a step back and we think, Oh, I get to visit a temple of God where the veil is thin and Christ can visit there. And I'm endowed with power and I'm a priestess and I can become a goddess. And when you really contemplate that, it's hard not to kind of swoon over the gospel. That's so well said. I don't know if I'm going to leave this in the interview or not, but selfishly, I really want to know how you came in contact with the church. So I had a friend in middle school and she was a Latter-day Saint and she moved to Utah and we, we had like written each other letters. And in high school, I got cut from the basketball team and was like super devastated in the way that only a 14 year old can be. <laughs> and so I wrote her about how despondent I was. And she wrote me back and she says she was prompted to share her testimony with me. And she invited me out to girls camp. And so in Utah, and I went to Utah and I came back wanting to be Mormon. I was raised Catholic. And my parents were super upset when I came back. And so I was like 16 at the time. Mm -hmm. And then they made me wait until I was 18 to be baptized. So I really, during that time, I studied it out. I read all the anti-Mormon stuff to make sure I was making the right decision. And then I was baptized when I was 18. Amazing. So would you say... Because I feel like, so one thing when you were talking about your love for the gospel, it made me think I've always felt kind of jealous of people that are converts to the church and, and have felt like, you know, what would it be like to hear the gospel for the first time when you're like a little bit older and you can understand it a little bit better. But I love what you said about like falling in love with it over and over again, because I do feel like I've felt that in my life. But do you feel like that, like having grown up Catholic and then joining the church that that influenced your desire to like study religion? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it really kind of ignited an interest in... Because I, I, you know, during the little period where I had to wait to get baptized, 
I had, you know, evangelical friends who invited me to church with them and they wanted me to join their church. And so I really studied it out and it just kind of made me really interested in faith in general. So interesting. Well, I have loved talking with the two of you and so appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your insights. Um, Brett, is there anything that you would add to that conversation about, you know, falling in love with the gospel? Yeah, I think even if you've been on a mission, when you get out of it, that's still a challenge. You have to keep re-falling in love with it. We were actually, this summer, we went on a camping trip, a backpacking trip in Colorado. We bumped into a Catholic priest slash monk and we started talking with him. And he talks about one of the things that monks struggle with is this thing called assidia, which is basically slothfulness. You just sort of like, you don't want to, you know, you're supposed to read the scriptures, you know, you're supposed to pray, but you just don't want to. And I said, oh man, yeah, I can, I experienced that too. I can relate. <laughs> right. Uh, but imagine it's worse for a monk because that's, that's all you're supposed to be doing. And I said, well, what do, what do monks do about it? And he says, yeah, you have to re-infuse your actions with love again. I'm like, well, how do you do that? And he says, well, it's a grace. Like you have to remember that, you know, he loved us first, right? God loved us first and recognize his love in your life and in what you, what you're doing. And by recognizing, Katie talked about that, mentioned that, like recognizing those moments where you feel God's love will propel you to infuse your, what you do with love. So I think it's just being attentive to what's going on around you and and seeing the love of Christ and the love of God manifest itself. I think that does a lot. Thank you so much. Well, again, thank you for spending your time with me and for sharing your testimonies. My last question for you is, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So there's a philosopher that I like named Soren Kierkegaard. He's a Danish theologian, also the father of existential philosophy. And he had this idea that we have kind of three, this is a very dumbed down version of this, but we have like three selves inside of us, right? There's our concrete self, the self that we are right now. I'm Brett. I live in Tulsa. It's, I'm talking to Morgan. Uh, I'm a podcaster, blah, blah, blah. Then there's, there's our, our ideal self. It's the self that we want to be. So I want to be the, most, the best podcaster ever. Uh, I want to... Sort of our personal ambitions and goals in life. Right. And then he says there's a third self and he calls it your true self. And this is the self that God wants you to be. And I think... If you look at scripture, what you see over and over again is a pattern of people being called to do, be the person that God wants them to be. Whether that's Moses, whether that's Jonah, whether, you know, the Christ's disciples, Joseph Smith. So I think what it means to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ is figuring out and recognizing the person that God wants you to be. And then being that, uh, I think a great example is of someone going or not going all in is the, the, the rich young man, right? He's, he's talking to the Savior. He's like, this all sounds great. What do I got to do to get this eternal life? And the Savior says, well, sell all your stuff to the poor. Come follow me. And that was the self that Christ wanted that young man to be. And he couldn't do it. And I, I always... Whenever I'm going on in my life, I'm always trying to figure out, am I striving to be the person that God wants me to be? So I think that's what it means to be all in 
the gospel. Thank you so much. I think that's, I think in, in a world where people are constantly talking about, you know, be your authentic self. I think that idea of there are a few different kinds of self is very helpful. Katie, anything else or what would you say? Uh, I feel like I would answer this question differently at different times. Uh, but something I've been thinking about lately is that, and it comes back to the idea of embracing paradox, is that I think a lot of times we look to the gospel for peace and for comfort. And I think that the gospel can bring those things. And we, we, but we, we want God to sort of align with what we think he should be, what we think is fair and what we think makes sense. I think a lot of times we say, like, I, I couldn't believe in a God that did X or thinks X or right. whatever. But I think that we oftentimes end up making God in our own image, which kind of creates an, an idol. Like we're made in his image, but we're not supposed to make him in our image. And I... I've just come to appreciate like the otherness of God. I I get enough of me as it is. Like I'm tired of me and I don't want a God that is just like me. I want a God that is different. And I think what comes along with that is that sometimes the gospel discomforts us. I think that the gospel is supposed to disorient us, to reorient us. And we want to skip the disorientation part, but I think that that ends up being on the wrong track of things. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis, and he said, the Christian religion does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. So I think that being all in on the gospel is being okay with the fact that the gospel brings both comfort and peace and also discomfort and actually kind of embracing the fact that it does disorient you, that sometimes it's weird. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. And sometimes it's really mysterious. And I think, and being like, I really need that in my life too. That is so good. Thank you both so much. These were fantastic answers and and such helpful uh, food for thought. I'll be chewing on this for a while. So thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. We are so grateful to Brett and Kate McKay for joining us on today's episode. Be sure to check out The Art of Manliness for some great content, regardless of whether you are a male or a female. Thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix It Six Studios for his help with this episode. We know the days are ticking between now and Christmas, so remember, if you love this podcast and you're looking for a last-minute neighbor gift or a gift for a favorite things party, the all-in book is a great option, if I do say so myself. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be with you again next week.